Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and receive weekly grief guidance from me, monthly group grief support calls, and the first look at my upcoming books, online courses, and projects, become a patron now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Just $3 a month gets you access to everything there is to see on Patreon, plus connection to a beautiful group of grievers just like you. Unlock grief support now for $3 a month and support this show at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you this week to Deidre for becoming a Patreon supporter and to you for listening. What if you could improve your relationship to grief a little bit every day? If you're looking for comforting words and practical exercises condensed into one small paragraph each day, check out my new book, Your Grief, Your Way. It's a non-religious daily devotional that helps you get in touch with your heart and your grief for a full 366 days. Find your grief your way now on Amazon, Audible, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere else you buy books. And stay tuned to the end of this episode for a special excerpt from Your Grief, Your Way. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today, I'm speaking to Gary Shockley, whose book, My Heart Sings a Sad Song, is a beautiful, non-denominational story that helps children grieve. We're talking about how a series of unending losses inspired Gary to become a hospice chaplain, why children are often the forgotten mourners in a family, and how we can hold a little bit more space for ourselves in our grief. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, grief growers. Before we jump into the interview today, I just wanted to say a huge, enormous thank you to everyone who has pre-ordered copies of my new book, Your Grief, Your Way. I received the physical copy in the mail today, and so it is becoming more real and more real and more real with every single day that goes by, which is totally wild. Um, For those of you who don't know, Your Grief, Your Way is my new little grief book. It's got 366 days of inspirational quotes and comforting words and practical exercises to walk you through a full calendar year after somebody you love dies. Disclaimer, it's not for the first year after somebody you love dies. It certainly could be, but that's not a requirement in order to pick up this book. It's for any year and you can literally start at any time. You can start in the middle of September. You could start in January. You could start in April and you would get the benefit of all of these exercises and tips and quotes and small words that help you come back to life again after somebody you really, really love dies. And I love waking up every morning and checking my email and seeing reviews of the book because there's advanced copies floating around in the world, including in the Your Grief, Your Way launch team, which you can join now on Facebook and get in your own advanced copy of the book. Um, People have started absorbing the messages that are in Your Grief, Your Way, and they've started applying it to their own grief. I wanted to share three reviews with you at the top of the show, and then we'll get to our interview with Gary Shockley. Uh, The first comes from Betty, who says, okay, Shelby, I am only mid-February in reading this book, and I am sobbing, but in a good way. Loving this so far. So Betty has only read about two months worth of Your Grief, Your Way, and already something in there is resonating with her and her grief. Jean says, I like this book a lot. I just lost my brother last week. This book has been a big help to put things in perspective. What a wonderful gift for anyone suffering through grief. And Susie, who's actually a librarian, said, I lost my father a few months ago and knew this book was something I needed. I'm so glad to have this book and the different ways she highlights to deal with grief. I know that everyone deals differently, and I liked how there were different ways about talking about grief and methods to help deal with your grief. I liked that there were daily messages and quotes from other gravers, a good grief handbook. So this book, while not a book that has a lot of 
what's the word I'm looking for, grief growers? It doesn't necessarily take you on a journey the way that my first book, Permission to Grieve, did. It doesn't, it doesn't lay out a map where it's like, this is the course we're going to follow. These are the action steps. This is the plan to unravel a toxic worldview that people have imposed on us about grief, and here's how to undo it. It's very much a different kind of structure. It's a dip in and dip out. It's a put your toe in the water of coming back from grief and loss and then go about the rest of your day. It's a book that you can kind of, I, I did a podcast interview for Your Grief Your Way this morning on the Thrive podcast with Dara Kurtz and Garth. And I talked about how some people with the Bible play what I lovingly refer to as Bible roulette, where they flip open the Bible to any page and just hope that a verse in there speaks to them. But you can literally do the same thing with your grief your way. You can flip it open to any page, and I guarantee you, you will find quotes, you'll find words, you'll find inspiration, or you'll find an exercise that resonates with you in your grief right now. If mindfulness is your thing, if arts and crafts or little practical exercises are your thing, if list making is your thing, if journaling is your thing, all of these are components of your grief your way. And when you pre-order this book, you are literally helping me tell the publishing industry that the world needs and wants more books about grief. And so you're not only supporting me as an author, this being my first book deal with a major publishing house as opposed to being self-published, you are telling the world and telling other grievers that grief books are in demand. And that's a really, really powerful statement to make. So pre-order the book now. Your Grief Your Way can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Audible, uh, in ebook form on Nook or on Amazon, whichever you prefer to read, literally anywhere you buy books. And even if you're in other countries, I've been fielding emails from grief growers who are in France, who are in Germany, who are in the UK. They said, can we get it here in Australia? The answer is yes. If there is a local bookstore near you, they can order your grief your way and have it shipped to the bookstore so that you can pick it up on launch day, September 29th. This is possible to get everywhere in the world, which is just absolutely mind-blowing to me. And I am humbled every single day that this is one major part of the life I get to live and the work that I get to do with grief. And grief growers, as a reminder, if you've pre-ordered the book already and want to be one of the people in a launch team for your grief your way, which means you get invited to an exclusive book launch party, I'll be answering your questions about grief and loss, reading passages from the book, sharing some behind the scenes stories of what it was like to write a book in quarantine because oh my God. If you would like an exclusive pass to that in exchange for writing a review on Amazon the day that the book comes out on September 29th, I would love to have you there. Facebook.com slash groups slash your grief your way launch team, or you can just search your grief your way launch team on Facebook. And as long as you have pre-ordered the book, because this helps your review show up as verified on Amazon, so they don't throw it in the trash as soon as you've written it, I would love to have you there to join us. We had over 80 people in the launch team for permission to grieve and so many of you left reviews when the book went live on Amazon and it helped so, so, so many other grieving people find the book. And so this is literally, I wrote the book myself, but getting it out into the world becomes so much a group effort and a project and a mission and a calling that yes, we want more books like this. Yes, we want to see work like this out in the world. Yes, this resonates with us. So anything and everything that you can do to help me get your grief your way out into the world is so appreciated. And thank you for all you have already done to help me get this little grief book into the hands of grievers just like you. And now my conversation with Gary Shockley. Grief Growers, I am really thrilled today to introduce you to Gary Shockley, who wrote the children's grief book called My Heart Sings a Sad Song. And I think for as much as children are a part of the grief space and there are institutions and organizations set up to help children grieve, so many times it comes down to the stories that we read to them at night and the small ways that we connect with them through visuals and stories. So Gary, welcome to the show. And uh, tell us a little bit about your lost story and or what got you into the arena of grief? Sure. Shelby, thank you again for having me on your show. This is awesome. I've been so excited. And uh, it's good to finally be here. Um, yeah, my story, you know, like every human being um, on the planet right now, we're all experiencing loss and, and stacked losses with this global pandemic. Um, but, it, but to be human means to, means to lose and to lose means to grieve. Um, and I was no exception to that rule growing up as a child. 
there was a period in my life uh, back in the mid nineties. And my wife and I were just reflecting on this when we had just this um, inordinate amount of death in our family. Um, my wife's mother died of recurrent of breast cancer at age 59. Uh, a year later, her father learned that he had stage four pancreatic cancer and died in, um, in between that period of time. Uh, we lost both of my wife's paternal and maternal grandparents and a favorite uncle. Um, and all of this within like three years. And our sons were very little. They were six and three years old. And uh, we lived about four hours away from our immediate family. And every time we would get on the turnpike, which they hated in Pennsylvania, um, to drive uh, back east, as soon as we told them we were going on a trip, their response was, who died now? Yeah. You know, because it was just, it became so commonplace. And I think when when grief hit me, hit us, in that kind of rapid succession, we never found ourselves or when death hit, we never found ourselves having the space that we needed to grieve one loss before we encountered another. And I personally found coming through that, even though most of it was on my wife's side of the family, I was very, very close to them, uh, deeply in love with her mother. She was just a sweetheart. Um, and, and if finally, several years after that all happened, then my mother uh, developed um, lung cancer, very rare, rare form traveling back and forth to visit with her, spent the last two weeks of her life in the hospital, sleeping on a cot at her bedside and was with her when she took her last breath. Um, so mom died and it was coming out of her death that all of the other ones just all of a sudden hit me like, um, like a bulldozer. Um, and I didn't at first understand what was happening. I found myself sinking into a very deep depression. I remember sitting on the front steps of our house at night, looking up at the sky, feeling as though I was being pulled into a hole darker than the dark night sky. And the sides of the hole were slippery and I couldn't get a handhold. And I just found myself just being drawn down into this black, dark space. And um, I've studied psychology. I have um, <laughs> degrees in counseling. And I realized what was going on and actually sought help and went into uh, therapy for about two years to deal with that stuff and a lot of other things. Um, and, and the turning point for me in it, because my therapist, I learned that I was an artist and very expressive in creative arts and recommended to me a wonderful book called The Artist Way. I'm sure you've heard of it by Julie Cameron. Mm -hmm. And I just dove into it as part of my uh, homework for my therapy in the morning pages, uh, first thing in the morning, and found in that experience that it just uncorked all of the uh, all of the grieving work that needed to be done in me, and kind of set me on a path toward healing and wholeness, and enhanced my curiosity about this thing called death and dying, uh, this reality for all of us on the planet, and what it means to grieve well. Um, that led me into uh, a field as a hospice chaplain. Uh, I felt drawn toward officially working with people as, as my life, my life's work, helping them to navigate the process of dying and then pro providing bereavement care to those who remain behind uh, to help them through that. And it was, it was out of that, that I became very aware of the children in my care as an interfaith chaplain, who were the forgotten mourners in all of this, conversations that were had in the room when the children were shushed aside or sent in another space to either play games or be occupied by somebody else or watch TV, while the adults talked about what it means to grieve and what it means to um, commemorate a loved one, uh, moving towards celebration and, and funeral services and things. and. And then I'd get parents saying, you know, I don't know what to do with my children because they, they don't seem to know how to handle this. Make a long story short, that's how this book got born. Uh, I started looking for resources, um, didn't find any that I found, again, that, had a, that were open enough in an interfaith environment that they weren't tilted toward one 
religion or spectrum or another, I wanted to create something that every single person can find their way into, no matter what their uh, religious background, ethnic background, cultural background. The reason I went with rabbits in this book was to neutralize all of that so that no one felt excluded. I'll take a breath and let you ask me another question because I could keep going. <laughs> well, and I love this story too, because something that immediately struck me about you telling it is your role in all of this as like the quiet observer of who's getting left out, who's not included, who is on the sidelines of this experience, who really needs to be, I get this um, verbiage of folded inward mm. and, and brought back into the circle. And I think so often children are left on the outskirts of grief and they, I mean, just like the rest of us, they have so many questions and things they want to understand and griefs that they want to express as well. And I'm drawing up this very distinct memory from when my grandfather died in, in fifth grade. And I believe this was the first funeral I ever went to in my life. And there it was held in a local church slash recreation hall. And so the memorial and the funeral happened in the recreation hall, but there was a separate room off to the side for all the kids. And there was like bracelet making and a big whiteboard and kind of all these activities. And I kind of remember thinking, you know, am I supposed to be sad or am I supposed to do a craft? Like, I, <laughs> I just didn't have a perception of like what I was supposed to be doing in that moment. And even when I would go into the area where the funeral was um, held and I saw my grandfather and was standing near my mother, there were many conversations where my ears were literally covered by one of my parents because what was being spoken about um, was not for children's ears, or at least that was the perception that I had. And so to do work and produce work that draws children back into a conversation about grief, mm -hmm. I think is really sacred and really powerful. And I love also, and this is kind of where I want to go with the next question of um, this, this goal of making it applicable regardless of religious or spiritual beliefs, because I think a lot exists for some religious and spiritual beliefs. And then there's kind of a dearth for um, just kind of non denominational yeah. grief work, non, yeah. non God related grief work. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very, but it's all spiritual. I think we're, we are spiritual people aside from our religious convictions or, or our religious alignments. I mean, my, my basic assumption about people is that we are spirited. Uh, it's what, it's that part of us that makes us uniquely who we are. It's, it's, it's the laugh that we remember from our loved ones when they die. It's the, 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 uh, winking eyes and the little pranks and the funsters, you know, it's, it's that, it's that special thing about a person that's just important. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm of the Christian faith tradition. And when I created this book, I had some folks who pushed me a little bit and said, well, you know, it doesn't really talk about, um, heaven and it really doesn't talk about, you know, it doesn't have any scripture, and, and they were a little disheartened when I told them, I said, yeah, all of that is intentional because <laughs> that becomes very exclusionary. I, you know, I, what this book does is it says to folks in the back, there's a guide for adults who are working with children who grieve that, you know, find a way to fold in your particular spiritual traditions in your conversations and in your way of working through this, whatever that is. One of my closest friends uh, is a hospice doctor that I worked with, a young doctor from India, and she's Buddhist. And we have the greatest conversations about things like this. And um, she's one of the endorsers of it because early on when I wrote the storyline, I ran a lot of this by her and said, how does this impact you? Um, and to people who have no faith tradition, do you see yourself in this? Is this something that would be helpful? Mm. Um, and you know, I, there, there's a lot of stuff out there for kids, so I'm not saying this is the only thing out there, but I think it, I think it honors the sense of there are no easy answers. <laughs> we can't dismiss children with platitudes. Um, cute little sayings have their place, but not when we're helping children to grieve. Um, and so this was my opportunity to kind of get on that platform to say, I think there is a healthier way of approaching this. Yeah, and something that um, can lead to something else. It's almost foundational, and then conversation 
can open from there. Cause I think so often the question that parents and even caregivers have is like, but how do I start talking to my kids about grief? What do I say? This happens with adult grief, adult to adult, (laughs) but especially with, with parents who are teaching their kids about grief or introducing the subject of death or, or missing somebody Mm -hmm. for the first time. And and how do I identify that feeling and explain to my kids what it is and Mm -hmm. let them know it's okay. Um, and having that as an avenue. I want to um, go back in your timeline a little bit and talk about how you kind of self-guided art therapied with the help of a therapist your way into <laughs> writing and illustrating a children's book. Because one of my first um, glances at My Heart Sings a Sad Song is who illustrated it. And it's also you. And so something special (laughs) happens. I illustrated my own first book, Permission to Grief. And so something special happens when we are the person with the words and we are also the person with the images. Mm. And so I wonder if you can speak to um, your relationship to grief and art together. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, And they have been integral in my life. Uh, art Art has been a constant companion from as long as I can remember. So all of my stuff gets worked out in art. Um, I've got a studio in the third floor of the house that I live in. I call it my fortress of solitude. (laughs) (laughs) That brings me joy. I love that. (laughs) And it's funny because when my wife, you know, she'll open the door and she'll say, I'm coming up. And then she kind of tiptoes up the steps as if she's walking in this very sacred space because she knows how important it is to me. And she knows the work that happens in my soul in this space as I'm creating. And, and so for me, um, I, I've got a book I'm working on right now and I just laugh myself silly and I've actually cried when I've, when I've created some of the characters. And that was true in this book where um, I had to be able to feel the emotion of the characters as I drew them, as they're talking um, and they're ex- they're freely expressing their feelings and their questions without any kind of judgment from anyone else. And the other people in the book are giving them the space. They're holding space with them to allow them to do that, which is just beautiful. And so, uh, writing and illustrating, as you as you've experienced yourself, Shelby, is one where you're kind of matching right and left brain together. You're, you're bringing the whole of who you are to the moment, and and the expression becomes fully articulated in terms of words, visual and cognitive kinds of things. Um, it's, it's a neat experience. I've illustrated books for other people. And I got to tell you, it's not nearly as meaningful for me. It's work. When I've illustrated books for other authors, I like doing it. It's hard to climb in somebody else's head and paint what's there. Um, and it's just a lot of work. This is just pure joy. <laughs> And I think that shines through also in the book is when you can tell (laughs) um, like a compatible marriage has been achieved, the marriage of the right brain and the left brain. It's like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And there's something that translates across the page when that happens too. Um, And I think that's just, I think that's really lovely when Mm. those two come together and you can really feel it in a book. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I think the next place I want to go is your work as a hospice chaplain and what it's like to be the person in the room for whom the grief is not directly happening to. Mm-hmm. But I guess uh, using your verbiage, the the space holder or holding mm-hmm. space for the people in the room. And I wonder how holding space for other people, your work as a hospice chaplain may have, and this is a leading question, uh, (laughs) helped (laughs) you learn to hold space for yourself because it sounds like so much of the grief you experienced before got you to a place where, okay, I'm entering grief as a field. And I wonder if any of that started working backwards in your timeline of now I know how to hold space for that person who was grieving, that former oh. version of myself. That is a great question. That's when, that's when you've given me something to reflect on. I think I can answer <laughs> it, but I, I love that holding space for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the most beautiful work I've ever been invited into has been um, working in hospice and the most difficult, challenging work 
I've ever been invited into has been hospice work. Um, I would tend to maybe three deaths a day. I, I was an in, inpatient unit chaplain. There were two hospice houses where we had the worst of the worst cases that couldn't be cared for at home or a hospital or a skilled facility. And so they came to us in their last days. And so it was dire. And um, it felt at times like I worked in a death machine. We're talking hundreds of deaths that I tended to and in persons and families in a year. Um, and then offering bereavement care, you know, after the fact. And I, th I think I found in that, um, I remember as a hospice chaplain stepping in the room and struggling to find my place in it, my physical place, as well as my spiritual place in the room. Yes. Yeah. Do I sit in the chair? Am I next to the bed? Should I be near the door? Oh my gosh. I never thought about that, but you're right. Do I, you know, do I say something or I just, do I just like not speak? Do I put my arm around them or do I give them the space to just be there? Um, when I was doing my clinical internship at a trauma one center, um, in Charlotte, and that was by far the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life was in the emergency department when I was on call and they were 30 hour on call shifts. And I was there and back and forth in the ED and the rest of the hospital, but the ED all the time. And it was so hard with a fast moving team of persons who were literally trying to save lives to find my physical location in the room was, I never, I don't know that I ever really figured that out. And what my role was in the room, because there was never a chance for me to reach in and touch the patient or do anything because of everybody else doing their stuff. And I finally had to be content to say, I got to accept the fact that in some cosmic way that I don't understand, my being here matters. My just being in the room matters. And, and Shelby, I still don't fully understand that. <laughs> I think, you know, we are, we can be incarnational. I think um, God and in, in, in whatever way we understand and, and, and express divinity or Godness, that there is an incarnation of that in us so that wherever we are, that is also fully present. And I just had to accept that that was okay. Um, I didn't have the magic words. I couldn't, I couldn't stop someone from dying. I couldn't ease the pain of the families as they were experiencing the loss. Um, and I carried that home every single day. <clears throat> I had a supervisor who was really good at helping me to unpack it to the point where I could express my own grief. I could cry openly. Um, and I had to learn how to let people go then. So we had a fire pit in our backyard and once a week we'd build a fire and I would, I would gather sticks from the, from the woods behind our house. <clears throat> and I would hold these little sticks and I would name, I would name the person out loud and I would break the stick and I would throw it in the fire and I would just offer it up so that I had some sense of completion or some sense of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, well, <laughs> the sense that I, I need to let that go now. Um, I can't carry all of these people and all of these faces of death with me and, and be with the next person. I just can't. I'm not designed to do that. So I need to, I need to offer them up and I need to let them go and release them. The hardest person I find this doing this with is myself. And you mm -hmm. hit the nail right on the head. I am hardest on myself. I feel like I ought to be able to get, I ought to be able to come back from a grief experience or come back from a loss, multiple losses, like I'm experiencing in COVID-19, that I ought to be able to somehow skirt around the loss uh, and the grief work that I need to be doing so that I can keep doing my stuff for other people. And um, are you familiar with the feeling wheel? feeling wheels that are out on the market at all. Uh, I've seen a few where it's like a pie chart with like six yeah. dominant emotions, but then each of the six are divided into exactly. 10 more. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I created a feeling chart, what I call feeling your feels chart that goes along with this book using the bunnies images where children can point to a bunny's face um, and be able to 
identify their primary feeling and then with an adult to help them talk about what is it like to feel that way. Um, and, and I find that I have, I guess one of the ways that I'm kind of working through my own grief work and holding space for myself is to identify my primary emotion, which lately has been anger, which has mm. been angry. Facebook doesn't help that, by the way. Nope. <laughs> and no universe, unfortunately. Newscasts don't help that. And as I take a walk around the block, I, I do my own self-talk of like, okay, you're, you're feeling angry, but what's underneath that? And what's underneath that is fear. And what is, what's, what's that all about? Well, I'm fearful. I'm fearful for my, my old, my older, my elder father. I'm fearful for my children and my grandchildren. I'm fearful for the people that I care about. What's going to happen to them in COVID-19. I've had this blasted virus. I hope I have immunity. Um, but you know, I did for us to be able to identify where we are in our own grief work is just so important. And I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Like I said, I'm going to be noodling on that for a while. Well, and I think it's a process that so many people who are grieving are always trying to do is how do I see myself? in the midst of all of this, because I'm seeing everything that's happening around me and I'm processing all this new information and I'm trying to identify all of these new emotions, whether you have access to a feeling wheel or not. Um, And in that, there's a lot of of self-research, but is the research sinking in as true witnessing and like being there for yourself as you're experiencing all of this? And so it's, it's a bit of a practice to to learn to hold space for yourself. And it's not something that society teaches. And so we kind of crash course ourselves into <laughs> making it happen. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. and, hopefully, and hopefully we do, you know, we don't live in denial or somehow stuff it uh, for the next event that'll, that'll trigger it again. Um, I think for me, and this might be a question for anybody else who's listening to the podcast What it comes down to for me is this question that I'm asking myself today is who am I now? Um, Who am I now that I'm not who I was? Who am I now that I'm not who I was? (laughs) Yes. That's a brain twister right there. Um, Maybe that's the, that question is creating the space for me to really, and not rush through it to find to find the answer or a solution or to make it all go away, but to live with it for a while. Who am I now that I'm not who I was? Hmm. Yes. Um, I teach a course called Life After Loss Academy that's all online. So we've been doing it even now in the midst of quarantine. And um, there's a whole like series of three weeks about um, releasing the old you and then embracing the new you and taking an identity inventory of who are you becoming now. And there's this tool that we talk about called the friendly anthropologist, where we look at ourselves as if we're studying our own actions. And instead of saying, that's bad, that's good, that's awful. I'm not who I used to be. I can't believe this is my life now. Everything that's kind of loaded with some kind of imagery. uh, I'll ask my students to just say, oh, isn't that interesting? (laughs) Oh, the human can't be in the grocery store for more than 20 minutes without freaking out. Isn't that interesting? And kind of see ourselves in this very neutral, very friendly kind of way. Um, And there we can allow ourselves to decide if that's how we would like to continue or if we'd like to make that something different. Um, But without, you know, the weight of judgment, because grief's already so heavy to carry around as is. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. like that sense of, of um, I've, I've studied mindfulness. I use it in my practice around the sense of the thinking self and the observing self. Yes. And I love that where I can step outside to say, um, oh, that's, uh, you know, that feels like this or uh, to be able to identify it without personifying it to the point where I have to carry it around, but I can feel it, but allow it to go through me. But, but that observing self, I love that, you know, isn't it interesting, this behavior that I'm, that I'm seeing even in my own self and, and in the people around me. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I just pretend I'm watching myself on TV. 
<laughs> I'm like, man, pop- this series is real long. <laughs> you, you, bring, you bring popcorn and a soft drink or anything like yeah, that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one who, who sneaks in the, the boxes of candy um, <laughs> that I get from the dollar store. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, I think I want to go all the way back to the story that you opened with where you and your family and your two sons were getting onto the, the turnpike in Pennsylvania. And every time you would, the question was who died. And I wonder what you and your wife taught your kids about grief to be true and, or how you decided as a couple, what are we going to how are we going to roll this out? This is essential human information, but how are we going to relay it to our kids? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, I, I, I'm not sure we did it with any great intentionality. I think we kind of wandered into it and then, and then found our way and a united force to try and, and do this in a reasonable fashion. Um, we've never, we've never uh, sugarcoated or glossed over death as talking about sleep or, you know, um, they're gone or they're sleeping or they're in heaven now or those kinds of things. Um, cause death is, death is very real. When, when our kids were little, uh, they had pets, gerbils and, um, things like that, that died. And so they had, they had to, their death, ex, their first death experiences were with pets. And so we had little commemorative moments with those pets and talked about what they meant to us. Um, you know, they, they were curious about, well, what, what caused them to die? And understanding is one of the, one of the four stages of helping children deal with grief, grief is or to deal with death is to, is to help them in their understanding and to be able to talk about, I think with our sons, we talked about, well, um, you know, it was cancer and cancer is this, this thing that kind of grows abnormally inside of us. And it, and it causes the healthy organs to not function well. And, uh, you know, trying to talk about the physical aspects that led to death. And, and when somebody that we love dies, they're, they're not breathing anymore. Their heart isn't beating anymore. They're, they they're not eating anymore. You know, all those things that, that we see are very much part of life have, have stopped. And then we could, because of our faith context, talk about what happens to the spiritedness of the person. Um, and both my mother and father-in-law were outdoorsy kind of people. They, my father-in-law loved owls and wild birds and they liked wildflowers and mushrooms. And so we took walks, they took walks with our sons and our eldest son has a tattoo of an owl in a tree on his arm. And he got this maybe several years ago because it reminded him of his grandfather, whom he called Peepaw. His fondest memories, even as a young child, was doing nature things. And so now, whenever they're out in nature, they'll call and say, hey, I came home from work and there was a, an, a, a golden eagle flying around our property in Colorado. And um, I think it was Peepaw coming back to or he was just kind of watching over or there's this sense about him with us. Um, now they don't, they know that there was a death that T Paul's body is, is gone. And um, they were able to see that with their own eyes, but they also understood that there, there is another dimension. There's a part of us that is enduring. We don't know all the details about it, but there is a sense that the energy of this person that we loved, um, it's still around us, at least in our hearts and our own memories. So I think we did a pretty good job of helping them to work through that. Um, neither of us were very shy about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it sounds like there's a permission for it to keep showing up, as opposed to the death talk being a one and done conversation. I'm drawing parallels to the sex talk being a one and done conversation, Um, but allowing, yeah, grief to continue showing up for it to be literally tattooed onto your body for phone calls and texts to still happen of the eagles are showing up. The owls are showing up. I think they're here (laughs) right now. Cause this is something that my family and I continue, but we, we find pennies everywhere, especially while traveling. And so we're all convinced that it's my mother you know, keeping us safe as, <laughs> as we move around in the world. 
um, and go places or, or make big decisions. I often find piles and piles of change for about two weeks before I make a really big decision. So it's really funny um, to just put those things together and then to be able to reach out to my family members and friends who know that that's the language that I continue to speak Um, and allowing permission for that to keep appearing and be folded into like the story of your family. And I I like that, the permission, I like that word. And I like those links that when I think those are wholly acceptable um, to have links that the things that link us back to our loved ones who have died and it not go to the point of, of believing that our loved one is the penny, but that the penny points us, you know, they, they're reminders for us uh, of that. Um, I think that's, that's special. It's interesting with our sons too. My wife and I both talk about our own deaths someday um, very freely with our kids to the point where at first they'd cover their ears. We don't want to hear about that. <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> we didn't do that when they were little, but now that, you know, they're in their twenties, it's a little bit easier to talk about it, but it's like, well, you know, we're getting older and, and we know that life and death are commingled. It's part of the human experience. So, you know, when we die, we'd like you to have this, or, uh, this is what we're, we're really interested in, in terms of where our ashes could be placed in natural places that we love or, um, that kind of thing, because we, when we do die, we don't want it to be such a shock that we never talked about it with our kids. So it's this taboo subject, but there'll be a sense of celebration in the sense that our lives continue on, uh, through the stories that we tell and the way that we raise them. Um, I think that's really important. Our culture, our, our, our death culture in this society is awful. I think we're getting better at it. I think, I don't know how old you are, but my guess you're significantly younger than I am. But when I think of, you know, the millennials and generation Z, you know, the, the younger generations are much more open to conversations about death um, than my generation and certainly my parents or grandparents. That was a taboo subject in a lot of ways, um, which didn't didn't help us at all. If we don't talk to our children about death, if they don't have any understanding of it, and when they do experience it with people who are very close to them, um, and eventually themselves, it's, it could be potentially a crisis uh, without some framework that helps them to find their way through it and to see how this is a part of life. Right. And um, I feel as if in the past it was almost a shame to die like it shamed your family if you died. I'm like, it's a failure. you mean that thing you always do? <laughs> you mean that thing that all of us are going to do? Yes, it was like a, yeah, it was almost a failure. Or um, And some of us uh, still have this language, uh, especially in the medical profession of if somebody, if a patient dies, especially we have failed them mm. in some way. If we can't cure their cancer, if the heart disease is terminal, if um, they have an autoimmune disorder that's going to go on forever and ever until they die, uh, there's almost this idea of, we weren't able to fix. And so it was a failure. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a refusal to acknowledge that death is inevitable. Right. And that's the thing that I found healthy about hospice and hospice can be controversial in some people's minds. And I understand that, but hospice is one organization that accepts that um, death is actually a success, a, a peaceful pain, pain-free uh, predominantly pain-free um Peaceful death is is a successful thing. Uh, not having someone die in horrible pain um, and out of their minds. So uh, what I liked about hospice was that sense that death is okay. And I really did learn from my experience. There are a lot of things in life that are way worse than death. A lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. And just... Um even going all the way back to my heart sings a sad song. It's like a mournful embracing of what will naturally happen to all of us. Hmm. Inevitably, invariably. Um, Yeah. It's this grief is normal. It's natural. It's human. It's enfolded in the experience of being alive is also the experience of one day dying. Um. Right. And it's okay that this happened. And it's okay that you're sad that it happened. It makes sense. And, and, and 
um, you know, the way I ended this book was I could have just called this My Heart Sings a Song, but I didn't want to, I did not want to cover up sadness <clears throat> and make it a, a fun loving little pretty book on the front cover that, you know, denies the fact that it's going to be a book that deals with a pretty serious subject. And the sense in the story is that life comes full circle where there is death and life and death and life and death and life. Um, it's a recycling kind of, of, of energy of sorts that yes, in the midst of the pain of death and grief, there still can be joy and celebration. Um, we get to the point of commemorating our loved ones, whether it's finding pennies, you know, and picking them up and smiling or a hawk or an eagle that's circling our house and reminding us of someone we love. And so this, this book ends with a, a song of remembrance, a song full of love, a song that will celebrate you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a happy song because songs can be sad, even in songs that are focused on love and celebration can still have this kind of mournfulness about it, but also the sense of hopefulness about it. And I think that more than anything else in life, there is this sense of hope that my life and my journey, my gifts to the world will have some sense of permanence for someone um, that, it, that, it, that I matter and what I've done has mattered. And hopefully it has impacted the world in a positive way. And that's something truly worth celebrating. You know? Yeah. And Gary, I think that's the perfect place to let people know where they can find My Heart Sings a Sad Song and how they can be in touch with you as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, aside from Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and those kinds of places, you can buy it anywhere anybody sells a book. Um, the, the keep in touch place for me, and this has been very, very special, is if people go to my website, which is hopespring, one word, hopespring.biz, B-I-Z, um, the website will give information a little bit about who I am, and they can read, they can see a, a trailer video about the book. Um, they can order it from me, and in the order, they can specify whom they would like it to be personally signed to. And um, it gives me an opportunity to make contact with people, and I'm getting... I've made friends all over the world already in this book um, and people who write to me to talk about its impact or folks who will write uh, adults, a lot of adults, Shelby will write to say, I've never really grieved so-and-so a person that I loved. And this book has opened up the possibility of even me doing that as I'm reading it to my child and they'll pour out their hearts and tell their stories. And then I can write back to them. And I, I love that. To me, it's it's a gift that I get back. So um, I would be delighted to sign a book for one of your one or many of your listeners as a result of this conversation. And I think that they'll find it helpful in a place where they can um, they can sit and find space. Um, yes, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where we learn to make space for ourselves too, or hold space for ourselves. So even the adults are like, oh. Yeah. I'm holding yeah. space for my child and I'm also somehow holding space for myself as well. How yeah. Beautiful. There's a kind of magic in that. That's beautiful. Oh, wonderful. Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on coming back today. This has been so um, soothing. That's the word I want to use. It's just <laughs> been a pleasure to listen to you tell your story and, and hear more about my heart sings a sad song. Oh, thank you. This has been a joy for me too. I just so deeply appreciate that. And um I think a lot of you and the work that you're doing, Shelby, in the world and the people that you're touching, as I've listened to other podcasts and as you've held space uh, for them, um, thank you so much for that. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Gary Shockley for coming on Coming Back to share your children's book on grief, My Heart Sings a Sad Song. Gary came back by learning to witness himself in his grief and turning to art and the book The Artist's Way to process his emotions and therapy. You can find Gary's book on his website, hopespring.biz, and of course you can always find a link to that in the show notes, Grief Growers. You can find my new book, Your Grief Your Way, 366 Days of Comfort and Practical Guidance After the Death of a Loved One Now, wherever you buy books. 
For the link to purchase, as well as your invitation to an exclusive book launch party on September 29th, click the link in the show notes. And be sure to stay tuned after the credits because I'm reading an excerpt from the book. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby You'll instantly unlock weekly grief guidance prompts and monthly live calls with me. Our next live grief support call is happening Monday, September 21st at 7 p.m. Central Time. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about coming back. Because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Coming Back. Now, check out the September 9th entry from my new daily grief book called Your Grief, Your Way. September 9th. When we share in each other's grief and pain, we lighten it. Or maybe we just give each other permission to feel it fully, and through that act of acceptance, the grief becomes more bearable. Because, like the rain, Tears, too, have an end. And with deep emotions, we are open to each other in unexpected ways. Karpov Kinraid Grief shared is grief lightened. In sharing our lost story with others, whether we simply speak our loved one's name or connect with their memory on a profound, deeper level, we shift from I and I alone am carrying this to we are carrying this together. There is relief in being seen by someone else and knowing that they just get it. If this entry resonated with you in your grief, pre-order Your Grief, Your Way now wherever you buy books. For more information, including your invitation to an exclusive book launch party on September 29th, visit shelbyforsythia.com. And see you next week on Coming Back.